As we begin this morning, I'll ask you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. As Pastor Aaron mentioned at the outset, this is the, the Sunday that is traditionally referred to as Palm Sunday. It is the that we annually commemorate what is the beginning of the final week of our Lord's life here on earth, the, the time where he was welcomed into the city of Jerusalem on, on Friday this week in our Good Friday service and on Sunday next week when we have Easter Sunday, I'm planning to look at the Gospel of Mark and look at the account of events as recorded there. So I thought it seems proper to set the stage for this week that, that we often will refer to as Passion Week by, by looking at Mark's record of Jesus' entry into the, the city of Jerusalem. It's the entry that, that begins that chain of events that, that culminates in his crucifixion on, on Friday. So assuming you're in Mark's gospel by now, chapter 11, follow along as I start in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem, all Bethphage and Bethany, near the, the Mount of Olives, he sent two of, of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest. I don't know about your Bibles, but my Bible above this set of verses is, has a label called the triumphal entry. Often that's what we call it. We call it the triumphal entry. Jesus clearly is, is greeted here with great acclaim. Yet the reality is his triumphal entry awaits his return. His triumphal entry will come when he comes as king to establish his rule on the throne of David. The, the people were greeting Jesus here in Mark chapter 11. They, they were greeting him, but they were wrong in their understanding of, of what was happening that day when, when they shouted their joy upon his rival. They, they were wrong in expecting that he was coming at that moment to set up a kingdom, but they were not wrong in their praise and adoration of Jesus. As we'll see in our text this morning, Jesus truly is, as you see on the screen, the preeminent one. He deserves all praise. He deserves all adoration. He is the preeminent one. This morning we're in our fourth sermon through our series looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul's been celebrating Jesus. He's been celebrating work of the gospel that centers upon Jesus, the, the gospel that, that describes the person and the work of, of the one who entered Jerusalem that Sunday morning. We've already seen in this series through Colossians that the gospel saves us, it transforms us. We begin to think like Christ thinks. 
We begin to act like Christ acts. That is what we mean when we refer to gospel transformation. We are changed to be more and more like Christ. Yeah, understanding that there's transformation properly, we, we have to understand the, the, the work that has provided our salvation. We, we won't understand the transformation without understanding that work. And that's been Paul's focus so far in, in this letter. Paul's been explaining what Christ has done. Salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ. But faith is only possible because of what Christ has done. We, we could not have faith if there was no content, if there was nothing, no work that he had performed. So, so Paul's begun to describe here in Colossians chapter 1 that, that God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us, as, as he referred to it earlier in the chapter, rescue us from the dominion of darkness and to transfer us into the kingdom of Christ's. The kingdom that the people were cheering there in Mark's gospel as Christ entered because they thought he was setting up that kingdom right at that moment. The kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. What the people there failed to understand is that the rescue that Jesus was accomplishing required the forgiveness of our sins. Paul's explained that as well. And that forgiveness of our sins could only happen when blood was shed because a holy, just God cannot just capriciously forgive sins. There has to be a basis for that forgiveness. So we have the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus had to go to the cross. His life was the payment our sins required. And he, being sinless, was the only one who could pay that price. Paul is focusing on this great work of Christ. And now Christ remains the focus as we move into verses 15 through 20 today. Specifically, Christ is the focus in his preeminence. We'll, we'll look at his preeminence more fully as we examine the verses. And yet, let's plant a thought firmly in our minds before we move in to the verses. Let's plant the thought, Christ is the preeminent one. That This evening, we're going to introduce a new hymn of the month. Each month, we're looking at a new hymn. In fact... We sang our hymn of the month in our songs already. He died for me for the last month. Now we'll look at a new one this evening. We'll introduce it. The hymn is called Behold Our God. And I'm going to borrow from that title as I want to lodge this idea in our mind to, to continue our series this morning. The, the idea should be Behold Christ, the preeminent one. Behold Christ, the preeminent one. As exciting as I'm sure it would have been to be in that crowd there in Jerusalem as Christ was riding on that colt and the crowd was cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna. As exciting as that would be, what we see in our verses this morning is even more stupendous. We need to allow our minds to be captivated by Christ. Behold Christ, the preeminent one. The, the structure of our verses demonstrates his majesty, his glory, by describing Christ in, in three different relationships. We see Jesus Christ, his relationship with God, the Father. We see his relationship to creation. And we see his relationship to the church. Let's go ahead and read the verses this morning. Uh, these are verses that I will turn to when we gather together like we will this evening for the Lord's 
table. And we, we take communion together and we celebrate the, that time around the elements. Frequently, these are verses thou meditate on. Verse 15, he, referring to Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. The, the verses I just read, as I said, they describe Christ in these three different relationships. The first relation is between Jesus and, we can say, the Godhead. The rest of the Godhead, that relationship. So behold Christ, the preeminent one. First relationship, behold the eminence of Jesus in the Godhead. Behold the eminence of Jesus in the Godhead. Eminence means one's importance. It means one's fame, one's distinction. Whereas preeminence, by, by comparison, means having this, these things, importance, fame, distinction, all those things, in a greater degree than anyone else. Well, Christ certainly has importance. Christ has fame. He has distinction in the Godhead. He is the second person of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God. He is the second person, so he has all the majesty and glory of deity. Yet we dare not think that Jesus has those in any higher degree than God the Father or God the Spirit. In the Godhead, Jesus is not preeminent, but he is certainly eminent. In verse 15, here Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is a spirit being. He is completely different from us. We cannot see him. We cannot touch him. He is spirit. Frankly, that means we cannot relate to him. Any frame of reference that we might have doesn't give us the, the, the background to be able to relate to a spirit being. He is totally and completely outside our comprehension because he is outside every frame of reference from which we could conceive of God. We have no natural means to relate to God. So what did God do? God, the Father, sent his Son, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, full deity. He sent him to take on flesh, the flesh of mankind, so that we would see perfect deity in, a, in humanity. We, we could understand what does perfect deity look like in, in a person to whom we could relate a human person. And by doing this, God provides a way for our finite, limited human minds to, to comprehend, albeit it's still in a limited fashion because he's infinite and we're still finite. But God allowed us to comprehend who he is. Do you begin to see the magnitude of what Paul is saying in this little phrase? 
He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of God. That, that means he is a representation, a, a manifestation, if you will, of God. I, I have a die-cast dinosaur that I received as a gift. I have this dinosaur on my, my desk at home. The, this dinosaur is quite fanciful. It, it's been designed in, in a steampunk style, so it's molded and, and has gears and springs that, that are shown where muscle and skeleton would be in a, a regular dinosaur type thing, below the skin level. Yet there's no doubt that this dinosaur or this, this, this cast item depicts a dinosaur. In fact, it specifically depicts a T-Rex. One look at it and you know it manifests the image of a T-Rex. Now we know that the closer and closer an image is to the item that is being imaged, the more precise that image is. Well, Christ is the image of the invisible God. A complete, perfect manifestation of God. In fact, I believe the commentators are correct when they note that little word is indicates that this is an eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1, God created or God made man in his image. But Jesus is the image of God. He makes the very reality of deity apparent here in creation. Remember, Jesus himself says in Matthew eleven twenty seven that no one knows the, the the no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. There's perfect knowledge between them. But then he goes on and says, anyone who knows the Son, or anyone to whom the Son reveals the Father, implying anyone that the Son reveals that we come know the Father through the Son. We need Jesus to reveal or to manifest God so that we can comprehend him. To the extent that, that we understand the majesty of Jesus, the, the extent that we reveal his, or understand his glory as is revealed in the pages of Scripture, as we see his work in the Gospels, to that level we comprehend God because Jesus manifests God. Every Sunday we, we gather together on the Lord's Day. Tonight, as I already mentioned, we celebrate the Lord's table. And we do that because we say our aim, as is above me, to joyfully magnify Christ. We make that our aim, we do all this because the majesty of Jesus is the majesty of God. We come to worship our God, and the only way that we can do that, without falling into idolatry, without creating a God in our own minds that is not the true God, the only way that we can truly worship God is by magnifying Christ. He is the image of God. He reveals God to us. Is Jesus the focal point for you when you come to church for worship? Are you more excited to see Jesus in the pages of Scripture than you are to see your friends? Is it more critical to express your adoration of Jesus in song than to catch up on events of life in the lobby? Are you seeking to love Jesus more, to honor him more, to worship him more every time you come into this building for a service?
Verse 15 contains this one phrase, it's a short phrase, that gives us this first relationship. The image of the invisible God. Such a small phrase. And yet it's so powerful. It informs us of the majesty of Jesus in the Godhead. He is the visible representation. He is the very manifestation of God. Behold Christ, the preeminent one. Begin by beholding the eminence of Jesus in the Godhead. The first relationship that Paul mentions here in these verses. The second relationship, as I said, is between Jesus then and creation. Paul goes on and talks about creation. And here is, behold the preeminence of Jesus over creation. Unlike in the Godhead, in creation, Jesus has no equal. He is the preeminent one. We worship Jesus because he is preeminent over all creation. Paul states the preeminence of Jesus over creation by, by writing, first off, that he is the firstborn of all creation at the end of verse 15. Now, by the time Paul was writing this, that, that word firstborn had gained a metaphorical meaning. It, it had the meaning of being first in rank, first in, in sovereignty, first in authority. It, it did not necessarily mean first one born physically. Think of even our series through Genesis right now. We're looking at the, the section of Genesis that deals with Isaac. Think of, of Isaac's twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the one that was born first, but God chose to flow the, the covenant promises through Jacob. And for that reason, we speak of Jacob of having the honor of the firstborn. That's the idea here, the honor, the, the glory that goes his, typically, to the firstborn, it became metaphorically mean the one of highest rank. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the one who is supreme over, or we could use our term, he is the one who is preeminent over all creation. Often there's an element of being first in time, but, but not always. He is first, first in priority among others. For example, think of how the Messiah was called God's firstborn in, in Psalm 89, verse 27. If we think that it has to have first in time, think of this use in Psalm 89, 27. He's called, the Messiah is called the firstborn over all the kings of the earth. The psalmist says, I also shall make him my firstborn, referring to the Messiah, the highest of the kings of the earth. Well, by the time Jesus came along, by the time he was the Messiah, there were many, many, many other kings. Israel had a lot of kings. So had all the world. So what the psalmist means is that Jesus would have first in rank. The Messiah would have first in priority over all the kings of the earth. In verse 15, Paul makes it clear, just in case there's any confusion, thinking that, that being firstborn means he's the first one in creation. He's the first to come around being born in creation. Paul makes it clear by says Jesus is in no way part of creation. In fact, Jesus is the creator. All creative plans and forces, everything required to bring this universe into existence, all of that resides in Christ. Every element 
of the entire created world finds its origin in Christ. He is, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things. He makes that point specific. And then he even calls out the spiritual realm. Everything's be created by Christ, even the things in the spiritual realm. Christ is a member of the uncreated Godhead. He creates all other spiritual beings, all thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities. Those refer to various ranks of spirit beings, ranks of angels, if you will. All are created by Christ. Therefore, Christ clearly has preeminence over them. He created them. In fact, they were created not only through him, but also for him. The creative forces flowed through Christ, through the second person of the Godhead, the one who became the the visible person of Jesus. But at the same time, he is also the goal of all creation. From the first divine act of creation that Christ participated in, from the moment creation began, Christ was the ultimate goal. Creation was initiated with the goal of Christ. The goal that he would be the king of kings and lord of lords. The goal of all creation is the kingdom of Christ. That that same kingdom that Paul said, we've been transferred into. That is creation's goal. Verse 17 adds to the idea a little bit more that, that Christ not only is the goal, but Christ is all the one, the one who holds it all together. He maintains it. All things have been created and maintained through him. Second Peter 3.12 seems to indicate that there will come a day where Christ no longer holds it together. He'll relax his hold and let it go. And at that moment, all of creation will melt away. But we can be assured that that day will not come before Christ has seen creation reach its goal. The goal of him being recognized by all of the created universe as preeminent. Look at the final phrase of verse 16 along with verse 17. All things have been created through him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. We, we have three prepositions there. They've been created through, for, and in him. And those three prepositions combine to show us why Christ is preeminent over all creation. Creation was through him. Creation was for him. Creation remains in him. Christ is before all things. He's responsible for all things being created. He's maintaining all things. He's the goal of all things. He is majestically preeminent over all creation. This description here of the majesty of Jesus over creation, it should drive our worship. It should excite us when we think of the the fact that Jesus is above all creation. He is first because he is Jesus Christ. We are creatures. He is preeminent over us. He is the one that we are pointing towards. Our reason for existence is to magnify the preeminent one. That's what creation is here for. The goal of creation is Jesus. We are here to point to Christ. That's our purpose. 
That's why we worship. Are you worshiping Jesus that way? Clearly, the creator is worthy of worship. Clearly, the sustainer is worthy of worship. Clearly, the goal of creation is worthy of worship. Creation in all of his majesty and all of his glory is designed to point to Jesus. So let's marvel at the world around us. When we look at the stars and the heaven and everything we see, let's marvel at it. Let's rejoice in what God has given us, but let's worship the majesty of Jesus. He is preeminent over all creation. Behold the preeminent one. Behold the preeminence of Jesus over creation. Christ is eminent in the Godhead. Christ is preeminent over creation. But remember, Paul has three relationships in this paragraph. Number three, behold the preeminence of Jesus over the church. Behold Christ, the preeminent one. Behold the preeminence of Jesus over the church. In verse 18, Paul turns from the original creation to the new creation. The redeemed church, the the body of Christ. Paul informs us that Christ is not only the, the, the preeminent one over all creation, he says he is also head of the church. That that means that he is the one in the highest authority in the church. He rightfully has authority over the church because the church is his people. He sets the direction. He provides the power. He is over the church as head. And then the question might come, why? Why is Christ over the church? Well, Paul gives a couple of reasons. He says, one, Christ is the beginning of the church. That, that phrase points to the fact that, that Jesus is the source. He's the origin of the church. There would not be a church, at least not a, a Christian church. So there might be something, but it wouldn't be a Christian church by any means if it were not for Christ in the beginning. There could be no church without the redemption, the forgiveness of sins that was mentioned in verse 14. There could be no church without Christ. His work of redemption is fundamental. Jesus is the beginning of the church. Making his preeminence even more significant, not only is he the beginning, Paul says he is also the firstborn of the church. We have that term again, firstborn. Not only is he firstborn over original creation, he's firstborn over the new creation. Because Paul says he's firstborn from the dead. Now, remember, that term can mean First in time or first in rank? Well, here it means both. Jesus was chronologically the first one to be raised from the dead. We celebrate that every year when Easter rolls around, don't we? In just a week, we're going to remember the tomb is empty. Of course, we remember that every Sunday as we gather, don't we? The tomb is empty. He was first to raise from the dead. But it's also first in rank of over all those who be raised from the dead. That's what makes a Christian funeral different from the funeral of an unbeliever. You and I, assuming we both believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we die before he returns, we will be raised from the dead. 
we will not stay in the tomb. We have this great hope, this great joy. The hope and joy that Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 lets us grieve differently from those who have no hope. We will experience the resurrection following the the pattern of, of Jesus. And yet, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. The day we call, as I said, Resurrection Sunday. We remember Jesus' resurrection in a special day. You and I will never have a day set aside commemorating our resurrection. Aside from the fact, it will be the day Christ returns. We remember his resurrection because of his preeminence over all resurrection. Our resurrection will eternally be secondary to Jesus because his resurrection is preeminent. Our resurrection depends on his resurrection. He rose from the dead, giving victory over sin and death so that we can be raised from the dead. Our resurrection is evidence of his victory. Our victory is dependent on his victory, not independent of his. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection, not the other way around. He is preeminent. In fact, Jesus rose from the dead first for the specific purpose of having first place, we're told, over the church. From all eternity, God the Father planned on redeeming people from their sins. Sin did not catch God by surprise. God had an eternal plan before the foundation of the world that he would redeem people from their sins. But God arranged that plan so that in the process of redeeming people from their sins, Jesus Christ would have preeminence. Jesus was already preeminent over creation. Through his resurrection and all that was associated with the redemption of of others by dying on the cross, God ensured that he would also have preeminence over his body, the church. This new group, this new creation. In verse 19, Paul says that, that God's pleasure all along centered on his son. God ensured that the totality of divine attributes, all fullness of deity would dwell in in Jesus and demonstrate that the Father's divine pleasure rested on him. Now, we should not find that surprising on multiple occasions. When when Jesus was walking on the earth, the Father directly stated his divine pleasure. For example, as baptism in Matthew 3, 17, we heard a divine voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am what? Well pleased. The same idea repeated on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. This is my beloved Son with whom I am what? Well pleased. God's pleasure through all eternity has rested on His Son. He has always been well pleased with His Son. And the Father displayed His divine pleasure in the Son by not only filling him with divine fullness, but also using him to accomplish reconciliation. All things are reconciled through Christ. Reconciliation, remember, is the, the removal of hostility and the restoration of a harmonious relationship. He says peace is accomplished through Jesus. As we well know from the events that we remember on this coming Friday, the process of reconciliation was bloody. 
Paul refers that great cost here. Peace required the blood of the cross. Nothing in all creation could be reconciled to God without the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. To fully grasp what Paul is saying here, we we need to recognize that that reconciliation is not exactly equivalent with salvation. Even though Christ's redemptive work separately joins the two, salvation and reconciliation are, are slightly different. Salvation is the forgiveness of our sins. Salvation is the the atonement for our sin guilt. Because we sinned against God, we deserved punishment. Salvation is the forgiveness of that punishment. And that that happens when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. When we trust that, that His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient pay for our sins. Until the moment that we say, I am a sinner deserving to die. That I am a sinner deserving eternal death because I have sinned against God. But I know that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay my penalty. And, and the moment, until the moment we ask God to take His sacrifice in our place, we are not forgiven of our sins. Our sins must be forgiven by asking God to accept Jesus on our behalf. That is salvation. And if you have not done that at any point in your life, please talk to me today. Let me explain it more fully to you. Salvation requires the forgiveness of sins that can only be done by accepting Jesus' payment. Reconciliation, on the other hand, is a removal of a barrier that sin created between us and God. Our sin not only brought warrant uh, not only brought upon us the, the warrant of punishment, our sin created a barrier so there was no relationship between us and God. We needed our relationship to be reconciled. And reconciliation is the removal of that relational barrier that sin created between us and, and God, and frankly, between God and all creation, because all creation was disrupted by sin. Maybe we can think of it this way. I can be married to Grace without having a harmonious relationship with her. Our our marriage became a reality the the moment that I said I do and she said I do when a pastor was standing there before us and and he said, you are now man and wife. Yet, I'll admit, there's been one or two occasions over our 30 plus years that disagreements have arisen and, and things have been less than harmonious by God's grace for short times, but they've come up. And in those times, we need reconciliation with one another to restore the relationship. Well, all creation was affected by sin. All creation groans under sin's curse. Sin ruptured the harmonious relationship between the creation and its creator. Really, we could think of it this way. When, When sin entered the world... All creation began to shake a metaphorical fist at its creator in rebellion. What Christ accomplished was reconciliation for all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. All rebellious creation is brought under God's sovereign power once more through the cross work of Christ. Christ's work has cosmic significance. 
Yet the most significant aspect of that reconciliation applies to moral creatures who have to make the decision to accept it. By moral creatures, I mean people like us, those who know right from wrong. Dogs do not need to make a moral decision. You and I do, because God made us in his image. The church, then, those who accept Jesus as Savior, the church is the pinnacle of Christ's reconciling work. I know it's hard to see in our translations in English, but, but Paul repeats the same three prepositions they used to, to demonstrate Christ's preeminence over creation in, in verses 16 and 17. He uses those same three prepositions again in verses 19 and 20 to highlight Christ's work over the new creation. God the Father gives Christ a role in the church such that the church is in him, and the church is through him, and the church is for him. Christ is responsible for creating the church. Christ is responsible for maintaining the church. Christ is the goal of the church. Christ is preeminent over the church. This truth certainly should affect our worship. When we come together as the church, Christ should clearly be preeminent. In everything we do, it's only proper that we joyfully magnify Christ when we gather as the church. He constantly should be the central position in our worship. Our preferences should never drive what we do in worship. It really doesn't matter if I like something or you like something. What matters is Christ being center. Everything we do when we gather should demonstrate that he is preeminent over us. That should be how our worship is conducted. Still, even ensuring that, that Christ has clear preeminence in our worship, that's not enough. Christ must take central position. Christ must take the preeminent position in our lives all week long. We are the church. We are the church. We are the church when we gather, and we are the church when we disperse. We are the church. As we disperse, we take the church into the world. It's our individual duty to, to magnify Christ by living our lives for Christ. When we gather, we joyfully magnify Christ. But when we disperse, we are to continue to joyfully magnify Christ. We are to magnify his preeminence to the world around him, the world he created. If Jesus is preeminent, then we will be excited to talk about him. If Jesus is preeminent, then we will sacrifice for him. If Jesus is preeminent, then we will worship him. If he is preeminent, it will be obvious. Jesus is preeminent over the church. That truth is a theological fact. It's a theological reality. The question is, is he preeminent over your life? Are you living as if you are part of the church? Is his preeminence obvious? Behold the preeminent one. Behold the preeminence of Jesus over the church. 
Nearly 2,000 years ago now, Jesus entered the streets of Jerusalem riding on the back of that colt. And as he entered, there were shouts of acclamations that the crowd were cheering, excited to see him arrive, heralding him as their arriving king. They were right. He is the king. That is who he was and is, for that matter. Yet by the end of the week, the people of Jerusalem had moved on. They had rejected the one who truly is preeminent. In a few minutes, we'll be leaving this building. Will we move on? Or will we embrace Jesus for who he truly is? The preeminent one. Paul has called us this morning to behold him. Behold Christ, the preeminent one. Behold Christ. Behold the eminence of Jesus in the Godhead. Behold the preeminence of Jesus over creation. Behold the preeminence of Jesus over the church. Behold Christ, the preeminent one. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have seen Christ in Scripture. Father, I pray that as we've looked at the words that describe his preeminence in Scripture, that our minds would be able to conceive of him as he truly is, the preeminent one over all things. May we imagine him as he is, all deity in human form, all deity and all humanity who gave himself for us, dying in our place. Father, if there is someone here today that does not know Jesus as Savior, I pray today that you would draw that person to yourself, that they would come to see that Christ is just not someone to talk about. He is someone to know. And we can only know him when we ask him to forgive us of our sins. Father, for the many who are here who have gathered as his church, those who have accepted him as Lord and Savior, may it be obvious that he is preeminent in our lives. May it show from how we worship. May it show in the joy that we, with which we sing. May it show in the obedience in which we live that he is preeminent. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.